I want to start off by telling you about a man named John Dixon. John Dixon is an Australian, uh, grew up without any knowledge of God whatsoever. Even though every year, every day in class, he had a scripture class as part of his education. Back in his day, uh, he's a little bit older than me, but back in his day, uh, they had, you know, scripture classes were part of Australian education. That was a remnant of the days when Australian schools were all run by the church. And when the church handed over control of the schools to the state, one of their provisions was, well, you need to let us have a time every day for a volunteer from one of our churches to come and and teach the scriptures to the kids. And that sounds good to Christians like us, but to a man like John, who grew up in a home with no knowledge of Christianity, no interest in the things of God, the, the scripture class every day was just a time for him to daydream. You know, it was usually somebody from one of the local churches who was very, very old and didn't really have a lot of interest in teenagers or knowledge of how to relate to teenagers. And so they would just sort of sit and daydream or goof off. But one year, his scripture teacher was a woman named Glenda. She was about the age of his mom. Uh, Glenda seemed different. She wasn't just trying to get through a lesson every day. She seemed to actually take an interest in the kids themselves. In fact, early in the semester, she said, okay, starting this Friday, every Friday, if y'all wanna gather at my house after school is over, we'll continue our scripture lesson from the week and I, will, I promise to feed you well. You'll have burgers and milkshakes and cupcakes and brownies and all the kind of stuff you like. And of course, the kids showed up for the, the brownies and the cupcakes and the burgers, but After a while, they started to be more interested in the scriptures than the food. Now, Glenda, as I said, seemed to care about each student individually and not just see them as a a job uh, to do. And in fact, at, at some point in the year, now this is a rough crowd, I need to say, John's friends, they were bullies and rebels and they were drug addicts and they were, uh, you know, the kinds of kids that you wouldn't want your kid to hang out with. One of, one, at one point in the school year, one of that group was a, a young man named Daniel, and he'd gotten extremely drunk and uh, was a, just a, a real mess. And they knew, you know, that Daniel's dad was a military man. They knew if he went home that night, he'd be in big trouble. His dad would kill him. So they said, okay, well, we have to, we have to keep him from going home, maybe call his dad and say he's going to spend the night with one of us but none of us can take him home to our parents either because our parents will rat him out to John's, to, to Daniel's parents. And so, well, what do we do? What are we gonna do with Daniel? And somebody said, well, why not take him to Glenda's house? Now, Glenda was a, a well-dressed, you know, well-to-do woman and she had some well-to-do friends, but they didn't think about that. They came at midnight, knocked on her door and Glenda opened the door and saw what was going on and didn't bat an eye. She said, well, just bring him in. I've got a spare bedroom back there. Y'all take him back and and get him into some, you know, maybe some of my husband's pajamas and and he can sleep it off here tonight and you come pick him up in the morning. And and John says, looking back on it, it was an incredibly rude thing for us to do. But he said, the thing is, I didn't know anything other than Glenda had given me the, and this is a direct quote, the real impression that Christians actually like sinners. Now, don't you love that quote? Christians, I just think Christians like sinners based on that. Now, in our series, we're looking at how Jesus loved sinners. Jesus never failed to render aid when someone was hurting, when someone was stumbling, when someone needed help. Jesus never passed by someone like that. And in fact, he considers it our responsibility. If we call ourselves his followers, 
that we will be the same kinds of people. Now, you and I may not be able to heal. We may not be able to walk on water, but we can do what we can. We can invest in those around us who are struggling. And in fact, he is looking for people who will step up and take responsibility, people just like Glenda. Now, I'm gonna tell you another story, and this one you probably know uh, because most of you are old enough to remember 2005. 2005, uh, Hurricane Katrina scored a direct hit on the city of New Orleans, and the, the levees failed, and Lake Pontchartrain flooded the city. It was the kind of uh, disaster, the kind of uh, humanitarian situation you just don't see in the developed world like the United States most days. And in those days, in the, in the days just after the disaster, the regional director of FEMA in New Orleans sent an email to his boss in Washington, D.C. to tell him how urgent things were. And he talked about how the situation was deteriorating rapidly. Uh, people were literally dying in those medical tents that they had provided. Um, there were still thousands of people in the Superdome with no place to go because their homes had been destroyed. And now they were running out of food and water and, and the, the conditions there were awful. Uh, everything was just falling apart. It was a humanitarian disaster happening in real time. And he put all the bloody details in that email and sent it to his boss. And the national director of FEMA, here was his response. And I quote, thanks for update. Anything specific I need to do or tweak. <laughs> now, if you remember that, you remember that that email was released to the press and a lot of people criticized that uh, national director and for good reason. But I wonder if any of us, if we stop and think about it, we can identify. Because if you ever sit down, I don't think any of us ever do this, but if you were ever to sit down and just do a mental inventory of everybody you know, think about every person you know on a first name basis, and you just wrote down their name on a sheet of paper, and then beside that wrote, okay, here's what I know they're struggling with. You'd be overwhelmed, wouldn't you? I know as, as a pastor, that, that happens to me sometimes as I'm sitting and I'm thinking about y'all, and I think about how every single family in this church, it seems, has some battle they're fighting, some struggle they're facing. You know, this, this person has a, a medical diagnosis that they don't know how to face. This other person is struggling with, with depression, with anxiety. This other person has a child who won't speak to them and has totally rebelled and abandoned the family. And this other person hasn't been able to pay their bills in over a year and just doesn't know when they're gonna be able to get back on top financially. And this other person is going through a divorce. And this other person has a child that has profound uh, disabilities and on and on and on it goes. And if you were to sit down and do that mental inventory and write down all the people you know and all the things you're struggling with, you would just say, Lord, I, I, I just throw up my hands. There's nothing I can do. And what happens is we see and we hear so much suffering and need that we're sort of like that national director of FEMA. You know, until somebody just specifically comes out and tells me what to do, until somebody just says, I need you to do this for me, I'm just gonna plow ahead with my own routine because that's plenty of work for me. But, but that's not what we're supposed to be as God's people. We're supposed to be people who step up. We're supposed to be more like Glenda than like some nameless bureaucrat who just does what they're told. So how do we become those kinds of people? This passage we're gonna look at today is very short and you've heard it before, I can almost promise you, but it, it contains a challenge. A challenge that 
I think you and I are going to hear today and say, well, I should have been doing that all along, but I seriously want us to take this challenge today. Verse 35 of Matthew 9 says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There are three that we got more to, I've got more to read in just a moment, but there are three little phrases I want to point out to you. First of all, is that phrase, when he saw the crowds. The gospels tell us that for the time of Jesus's ministry, which was approximately three years, the crowds were a constant reality for him. He was constantly in demand. Now, some of you know what that's like when your kids are little and you're constantly under demand from that child. You never get a moment's rest. But think about thousands of people hunting for you always. I mean, even when you slip away for a moment's prayer, they find you and they seek you out. The gospels say that sometimes Jesus didn't have time for a meal, didn't have time to sit down and and rest or or even go to bed at night. Uh, You know, I've heard people who are famous, celebrities say, man, I wanted to be famous when I was a kid and now it's the worst thing that ever happened to me. And that's what Jesus was going through. And famous people, you often hear that famous people are rude and it's because they're tired of being around people and they don't wanna be noticed anymore. And Jesus never gave in to that. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Think about that kind of character. And that's that next phrase I wanna look at. He had compassion for them. That's not just mere words. It doesn't mean he looked at them and said, boy, isn't isn't that awful? What a shame. No, that word compassion in Greek literally refers to something going on in your intestines. (laughs) I'm not making this up. It, It literally means he felt it in his gut. His stomach turned as he saw the crowds and he felt their pain deep down inside of him. In our, in our metaphor today, we'd say his heart went out to them. Their pain became his pain. And then the third thing is it says they were harassed. And we hear harassed and most of us would say, you know, okay, that just means they were annoyed, they were bothered, they were troubled, but it's actually a very violent word in Greek that means more, something more like torn up or mangled. It's the picture of a flock of sheep that has been attacked by a pack of wolves and the, the sheep that are left behind that are surviving, they're all torn up, they're bleeding, they're broken, they're probably going to die, going to die if somebody doesn't get to them soon. The Jesus, when you think about Jesus' life, one of the things you know, if you've read the Gospels, is he was always in this war of words with the religious leaders of Israel. And the reason why was because of this. They were the shepherds and they hadn't done their job. The people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd because the shepherds had not done their job. And Jesus said, it's my job now. It's my responsibility. I feel for them. My heart goes out to them and I will do whatever I can. Now, Jesus says in verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He switches metaphors. He goes from sheep to grain, from the pasture to the field. And what he's saying is, we have, to get, we have to go to the harvest field quickly. Some of you grew up on the farm, right? Some of you grew up around crops. Some of you are gardeners right now. 
And you know that one of the realities of raising crops is you tend them for weeks or months and then the harvest comes in and you've got to get to it immediately. You know, gardening is a long game, but then when the harvest comes in, you've got a short window of opportunity or else those tomatoes are going to go bad on the vine or else uh, those, those potatoes are going to rot under the ground. You've got to get the crops harvested. And Jesus is saying there is a sense of urgency here. We can't pass by these people hurting and say, oh, that's terrible. Uh, one of these days when I have some time, maybe when I retire, or maybe when my grandkids get out of school, or maybe when I, I get through this project at work, then, then I'll do something. No, Jesus says, do something now. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he says, pray, pray that God would send workers into that harvest field. Now, you've probably heard this preached and if you've heard this preached, I can almost guarantee you the way the sermon went was something like this. We need for God to call out the, the young men and women of our congregation to go overseas and preach the gospel around the world to those who are lost or to, to serve as, as domestic missionaries who, who spread the gospel right here, who start churches in places where there are no churches, or maybe to be children's ministers or youth ministers or, or music ministers or, or pastors who lead churches right here because we need the gospel to be spread. And I absolutely agree. All those things are true. We need for those things to happen. And we need, as our culture becomes less and less, less and less interested in the things of God, we need more and more people to take on that vocational calling of ministry. And I pray that there would be people at First Baptist Church who feel the calling, not just young people, but middle-aged people and older people who say, now's the time when I'm gonna give myself fully to the work of the Lord, even though it means I'm gonna make less money, even though it means that I'm gonna give up what I'm doing, which is very fruitful and prestigious. I'm gonna go into vocational ministry. And yes, all of that's true. And if that's something God has laid on your heart, please come talk to me. I'd love to help you. But that's not gonna be true for most of you because we need people in other fields as well. And yet this still applies. Because I wanna show you something you may never have noticed. Jesus says, pray for God to send workers into the harvest field. Do you know what he does next? He sends out the 12. Think about that. He says to the 12, pray for God to send workers into his harvest field. And then at some later point, we don't know how much time passed, but the very next thing Jesus does is he says, okay, you 12 go into the harvest field. Now, why would he do that? It's, that's like me saying to my kids, hey kids, I'm really worried it's starting to get hot. Let's pray that uh, the, the yard, the backyard doesn't dry up and, and, and die and, and our, our, our flowers that we just worked hard to plant, that they don't die. Pray that God would provide water for all of our plants that everything would stay alive. And then a couple hours later say, hey, uh, Kaylee, we'll go out and water our plants. It's the same thing. Why would he ask them to pray and then ask them to go be the answer to the prayer? I think the answer to that question is, is something that we don't usually sit down and think about. When we pray to God, yes, God acts in response to our prayers. We, we know that. But it's not because he didn't know that there was already a need. You realize that when you pray to God, you're not giving God information he doesn't already have. And you're not changing God's character. It's not as though if you pray for someone who's hurting, God says, oh, well, you know, I never would have thought about Bob. I never would have thought about all his needs. I'm glad you brought him to my attention. You know, now that you've prayed, I'm gonna love Bob because I didn't love him before. You know, I didn't care one way or another, but now that you've prayed for him, goodness gracious, I better, I better put him on my list. That's not the way it works. 
The only thing that really changes, yes, God will do things in response to your prayer. And I don't know how that works with the sovereignty of God, but I know that God doesn't change. I know what does change is we change. When we intercede for others in prayer, it changes us. And I believe that's why God pray, uh, told, command, that's why Jesus commanded his disciples to pray before he sent them out. Pray that God would send laborers into his harvest field. Okay, you've done that. Now I think you're ready to be the laborers. I think that's how it works. Our prayers for others change us. And so in some cases, we get to be the answer to our own prayer. Yes, God does send others, but God sends us. And as we pray, we become the kind of people who are capable. Remember that story of John Dixon that I told you about at the start of the story, that Australian man. He and several other uh, members of his class when they were teenagers, that scripture class came to know Christ and a few of them went into vocational ministry. John was one of them. And when he became a pastor, he, he just, he looked up his old scripture teacher, Glenda, and he said, listen, I, I'm a pastor now and I wanna know what is your secret? You took a bunch of ragtag kids who had no interest in God at all and you led them to Christ. I wanna know what you did so I can do that too. And she said, it's simple, it's just prayer. I didn't have any strategy other than to pray. She said, in fact, I'd been teaching that scripture class for several years before, but that year, me and a handful of other scripture teachers got together and said, we're not really making a difference. We're not seeing any impact. So let's do something different. Let's just covenant that this year, we're gonna pray for every one of our students every day by name. It's what we should have been doing all along. We're gonna start doing it now. And she said, that's the year things started to happen. And again, Do you really believe that God didn't care about those kids in those Australian schools until Glenda and others started praying for them? Of course not. Their prayers didn't change God, but I believe their prayers changed them. That I believe maybe that's why Glenda was suddenly able and willing to invite these snot-nosed teenagers into her house and love them personally, to go over and above even the things she volunteered to do. I think that's, the way it works. That's, that's how God makes us into people who actually like sinners. And that's how God makes us into the people that he wants us to be. This week, I'm challenging you to do three things, okay? If you're a, if you're a note taker, here's your notes. This week, I'm challenging you to do two, three, three things. Number one, when you see a need, pray. When you see a need, pray. Now, I know, I know we know this, but we don't do it. Here's what we typically do, okay? I, I love this old story. Guy was a new pastor at this church, trying to impress his people about how spiritual he was in an early sermon in his tenure there. He said, okay, today I'm gonna show you all the power of prayer at the end of my message. Anybody who needs prayer for any situation, anything they're worried about, come see me. And so at the end of his service, sermon, he, he gave that call again. Okay, anybody who needs prayer right now, come forward. And this big fella gets up, mambles down the front of the congregation, and, and the preacher says, well, what's your name? He said, my name's Big Ed. He says, Big Ed, what's your problem? What do you need prayer for? He said, well, pastor, I'd like for you to pray for my hearing. So the pastor puts his hand on, on Big Ed's forehead, and he, he begins to pray in a loud voice. Heavenly Father, I pray for Big Ed. I pray for his hearing, that you would heal it, that you would make sure that he is able to hear like never before, that you would, right, front, right in front of all this congregation, you would make his hearing good. And he says, amen. And he says, okay, Big Ed, how's your hearing now? And Big Ed says, well, I don't know, preacher. It's next Thursday in the county courthouse. (laughs) 
See, we think of prayer as this thing we do one time and boom, something great happens. But we need to be people who persist in prayer. We need to be people who, who do the work of interceding on a consistent basis. And so I wanna challenge you to do something some of you already do, but I, my bet is most of you don't. And that is, I want you to keep a written prayer list. And, and for some of you techie type people, that's gonna mean you have a little note thing on your, on your iPhone or your, your smartphone that you, every time you hear about a need, you write it down. For others of you, it's gonna be old school. You're gonna have a, note, a notepad or a, a, a piece of a, a notebook or, or another, or just a sheet of paper you carry in your back pocket. And when you go to life group today and people ask for prayer requests, you write them down. And when you hear about something that's going on in your workplace or your school or your neighborhood, you write it down. Basically, everybody you know, who you know their name, whatever they're struggling with, I hope you have them written down. And every time you spend time with God, whether that's morning or evening or both, you pull out that prayer list and you pray through the names on that list. Now, number two, pray in detail. Now, here's something I know most of us don't do. I want you to pray imagining that the person you're praying for is overhearing what you're praying. If that person were overhearing what you were praying, you'd probably put more effort into thinking about how to pray for them, wouldn't you? Because ordinarily, here's what we do. We say, uh, oh Lord, please comfort God, uh, Ron in his time of grief. In Christ's name, amen. But if Ron was actually listening, you might pray something more like this. Lord, I, I just pray that Ron would know that he's loved, that he would be surrounded by friends like me and and that he'd know that we haven't forgotten him and please help him find a new normal. He's struggling right now because he, he's lost his mom and, and he doesn't know how to go forward. So just help, him show, help show him that there's good things ahead and, and most of all, just fill him with hope that he's gonna see her again. That's what I mean when I say pray in detail. Or to give you another example, you know that Jessica's struggling with her, her work situation and you just ordinarily would just pray, Lord, I pray that Jessica's work situation would get better. But why not pray something more like this? Lord, I, I pray that Jessica would, you'd give her patience with her boss and, and help him to be easier to work with. I pray that there'd be peace in that relationship. And if he's not gonna change, I pray that you'd open up a door for her to work somewhere else where she can find peace and, and, and a, a better environment in which to work. Or for instance, when you're praying for a lost person. I, I know a lot of Christians who don't have one clue how to pray for lost people. And so they'll pray things like, Lord, please save Jason's soul, which is a nonsensical prayer because the Lord's response, if he were inclined to so respond, would probably be, well, I died for Jason. What more do you want me to do? I've done everything necessary to save Jason's soul. The ball is now in his court. So what should we pray? We should pray something more like this. Lord, please help Jason to see that the things he has given his heart to are gonna fail him if they haven't already. Help him to f feel the sense of discontentment with everything in his life that's not you so that he will see that you are his only hope. I pray, Lord, that you would just surround him with people who love you and who love him and that they would invest in him in such a way that they would see, that, that he would see that, that you are God. Please bring him to salvation. See, again, when we pray that way, it's not like we're giving God some kind of strategy he hasn't already thought of, but it changes us because we start to take on their pain. We start to feel it in our gut like Jesus did. And it enables us to do a better job of loving them. And if you say, well, Jeff, I don't know how to pray that way. I've got an even better idea for you. Go ask that person. 
Go say to Ron, you know, Ron, I'm, I'm so sorry you've lost your mom. How would you like me to pray for you? Jessica, I'm sorry your job is so miserable. What specifically do you want me to pray for? When you know what they want you to pray for, when they know that you are praying for them, that is how transforming relationships get started. And then there's a third thing. Pray for opportunities to do more than just pray. Again, Jesus told the 12 to pray for God to send workers into the harvest field, and then he sent them into the harvest field. In fact, I I skipped over something, but Acts chapter eight, verse four is an interesting verse. Acts eight, verse four says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Let me tell you why that's significant. So that's right after Paul starts, or or Saul of Tarsus starts uh, persecuting the early church. And the early Christians, these are people who have just come to know Christ in the last few years. And they've been sitting at the feet of the apostles. Now all of a sudden, they have to scatter to the far winds, right? They're, they're living now in, in places far from Jerusalem, far from the apostles. And, and what happens to most Christians today if they get disconnected from their church? Well, they just basically blend in with the rest of their surroundings. Oh, I can't go to church anymore. I guess I'm, I'll just be a regular guy. But these early Christians didn't. They took the gospel with them wherever they went. And that's how the church spread. Why? Because Jesus multiplied himself in those 12 apostles. He sent them out to preach, to minister, to heal. He was teaching them something. He was saying, it's not enough to do ministry. It's not enough to love others. You also need to train other people to do the same thing. So, Jesus multiplied himself in the 12, and the 12 multiplied himself in those people in Jerusalem, and so it went. We need to understand that our job is to be part of the answer to our own prayer and to go forth. Yes, pray for those around us and and pray in detail, but also pray for opportunities to do more than just pray. As you pray for your friend Ron and his grief, check in with him, see how he's doing. As you pray, you'll probably think, you know, if I were in Ron's situation, I'd want someone to come and sit with me once in a while, or I'd want someone to, to come over and, and help, make, help me work through the vast details of death, the insurance and the, and the, and the estate and all, the, all those problems, or I'd want somebody to come over and, and do some of the chores around the house that I just don't have the strength to do. So you go do those things. You become part of the answer to your own prayer. Or with with Jessica in her work situation, you keep checking in with her and you suddenly become the outlet that she needs to share her burdens and to just bear her soul. And that helps her withstand the struggle of working for someone who she doesn't like. Or with Jason, who you're praying for his salvation, as you're praying, God will open a door for you to love him in a practical way. And it could be that the day comes when Jason's world falls out from under him and he's casting about for an answer and he comes to you because you're the one person he knows who cares. And that's when you have the opportunity to tell him about the Christ who has set you free and loves him just as much. See, that's how it works. Will you take these three challenges? Will you pray, keep a written prayer list? Will you Pray in detail, not just quick little snippets of prayer, but will you third of all pray for opportunities to be the answer to your own prayer 
Some of you know who Tony Campolo is. He's a, a Northern Baptist preacher, a little different from us Southern Baptists, but one of the great storytellers in the world. One of my favorite stories that he tells is of the time he was invited to, to preach in the chapel service at a Pentecostal Bible college in the South. And he drove down from his home in Philadelphia down to this Southern state. And uh, they, they wanted him to get there early so they could they could pray over him before the service started, before chapel. And so they gathered him into this small room and there were the, all, these, all these Pentecostal preachers who were the board of directors of that college. And they, they gathered around him and they all laid hands on him at the same time, which is kind of a nice thing. But they prayed a long time. Each one of them had to pray individually. And as they prayed, their hands got heavier on his head. And so while he at first was thinking, man, this is so great that I'm getting all this prayer for my message today. After a while, he started to get, say, okay, hurry it up. Especially when one of the trustees started praying for things that weren't even related to the chapel service that day. And, and at one point he said, Lord, you know, Bob, you know, the guy that lives in that silver trailer on I-35 on the outskirts of town. And Tony's thinking, well, good grief. I think God knows who Bob is. You don't need to give him directions to his house. Uh, but this guy keeps on praying. He says, you know, Lord, Bob, he's, he's planning to leave his wife this morning. And I just pray that you would intervene and that you would make sure that he doesn't get away and he stays home and, and their marriage is reconciled. And so eventually uh, they said, amen. And, and Tony got the Pentecostal preachers off his head and he got up and, and he preached his sermon for the students. It went very well. And and after he shook hands with everyone, he got back in his car and started to drive home down I-35 and he's going out of town and he sees a silver trailer and he thinks, huh, I wonder if that's Bob's house. And as he's driving a couple of miles further, he sees a guy hitchhiking and he says, you know, I never do this, but I'm gonna pick him up. And he picks him up, they get back on the highway and he, he says, my name's Tony. And, and the guy says, well, my name's Bob. And so immediately he hits the blinker signal and he gets off at the next exit and does a U-turn. And Bob says, um, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm taking you home. He says, why are you doing that? He says, because I'm not gonna let you leave your wife. You're not gonna do that. Now at this point, Bob is plastered to the door of that car and he's staring at Tony with his eyes the size of dinner plates. And he, he gets even more surprised when Tony pulls up right in front of his house, that silver trailer. And he says, how did you know where he lived? And without breaking a smile at all, he says, God told me. And so right then this little woman comes out of the trailer house and she says, you're back, why are you back? And Bob gets out of the car and runs to her and he whispers something in her ear and her eyes get big. And Tony gets out and he says, okay, let's go inside. I'm gonna talk and you two are gonna listen. And they did and they both accepted Christ that morning. Now, I love that story. I can't promise you that every time you pray, you're gonna get an answer that dramatic. It hasn't worked that way for me. But every time you pray, God is gonna act. Every time you pray, God is gonna change the situation in the world and in you. Are you willing to try? Are you willing to take real action? The devil laughs when we make plans, but he trembles when we pray.